When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to Novel Dialogue, a podcast that brings novelists and critics together to explore the making of novels and what to make of them. This is season four of the show, and we're dedicating our episodes to novelists and translators in conversation. I'm Chris Holmes, one of the many hosts you're going to be hearing this season of Novel Dialogue. Today, a Chilean novelist, Alia Trabuco Zeran, will be in conversation with her translator, Sophie Hughes. One of the most exciting voices in Latin American writing today, Alia Trabuco Zeran was born in Chile in 1983. She was awarded a Fulbright scholarship for her MFA in creative writing at New York University and she holds a PhD in Spanish and Latin American studies from University College London. La Resta, The Remainder, her debut novel, won the prize for Best Unpublished Literary Work, awarded by the Chilean Council for the Arts in 2014, and on publication was chosen by El País as one of its top 10 debuts of 2015. In 2019, the remainder was shortlisted for the Man Booker International Prize. Most recently, she is author of Las Homicidas, Women Who Kill, also out with And Other Stories. Aliyah's translator for both books is Sophie Hughes. Sophie has translated some of the most exciting and enduring writers in the Spanish language. Both her translation of Aliyah's The Remainder and Fernanda Melchor's Hurricane Season were finalists for the International Booker Prize. She has been a finalist for the Dublin Literary Award and long-listed for the National Book Award in Translation and Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Fiction. Hi, Aliyah and Sophie. Hey, Chris. So good to be here. Sophie, great to have this conversation with you today. Yes, I'm very excited. Thank you so much, Chris, for the invite. And I'm super excited that I could do it with Alia. Thank you so much, both of you. Um, we've come today to talk about a novella that Sophie 
co-translated with Amanda Hopkinson, a little demon of a book called Elepando, or The Hole, by the late Mexican writer Jose Revueltas. When Sophie and I originally spoke about an interview, she already had in mind a conversation with Alia that could focus on a novel that had been important in its moment, somewhat muted by time, and then rediscovered and reinvigorated in translation. I begin by asking Sophie to introduce Revueltas and the whole, and then maybe the two of you could tell me how you arrived at this weird, violent, terrifying, claustrophobic, ingenious novella as your conversation piece for this interview. And Sophie, I believe you're going to read a little bit as well. Yes, I, th I think it's worth reading a bit, um, just to give the listeners an idea of what we're talking about when we talk about a sort of unhinged writing pro style. <laughs> um, uh, I, will, I will begin by um, talking a little bit about José Revueltas. And uh, this is actually the second work of his to be translated into English. The first was um, El Luto Humano, which was translated, it was called The Stone Knife. And it was translated in the first, at the end of the first half of the last century. So um, quite quickly after it was awarded the National Prize for Literature in Mexico. So this was a successful book and it was his first full length novel. After that, it was a complete um, sort of radio silence from him in English until Amanda and I came up with this slightly harebrained idea and plan to try to get El Apando into English, finally, what, what is considered by many people to be a masterpiece of um, Latin American and Spanish language literature. And actually, funnily enough, this is a book that Alia mentioned to me when I first suggested the idea to you, Chris, I was absolutely imagining talking about someone else's translation of, a, of another book that, that, I, that interests me a lot, looking at other people's translations and the decisions that they make. But then Alia was like, oh, come on, if we're going to talk about reinvigorating a sort of lost work uh, and a short work as well, and one that has had a big impact on us both, and Elapando is surely the one. Uh, I'll give you a little idea of who Revueltas was, is. <laughs> he was born in 1914 uh, in Durango, in, in the state of Durango in Mexico, but he was he moved as a kid, as a young kid, to Mexico City. Revueltas was initially, and I think throughout the rest of his life, considered himself to be first and foremost a sort of political activist. Um, at, he was just 13 when he kind of came into contact with um, some laborers in, in Mexico City and, and in other places in Mexico where he, he was traveling around. Um, and he was introduced to Marxism. And Marxism was an ideology in its kind of shifting guises that really impacted on his life and obviously on his writing as well. I mean, he himself said later in his life that he tried not to introduce politics into his literature. And uh, he said, and I quote him, he said, I, I'm necessarily a person located in society and politics. I don't conceive of myself as a writer without my political background. So it's a bit of a contradiction because I think in this work, especially what is so masterful about it is that he sort of reaches that sweet spot with Elapando, where it is both a kind of public, it has a public narrative. You know, there is a political driving force and ideology behind the work or several, but his last work was set in a prison where he was captive. And that is Elapando, which he wrote in 
1968 and was published in 1969. And he was imprisoned in Leckenberry Prison, uh, otherwise known as the Black Palace. It's, yeah, so that's a little bit about Revueltas. And, and in terms of what, what kind of figure he is now, um, it, this, is a, this is a book that I've never met anyone in Latin America who's a reader or a writer who hasn't read it, um, which I think that says sort of it sort of speaks for itself. Let me tell you a little bit more about the novel. So he wrote this novel, as I say, when he was in prison in, in 1968. Uh, the book is set in Lecumberi, set in the prison where Revueltas was imprisoned when he wrote it, but he doesn't name it as that prison. There are three convicted drug addicts. They're the main characters, El Carajo, which we translated as the prick, Albino <laughs> and Polonia. And they, they're basically conspiring to secure their next hit. They're sort of junkies. They're really in deep trouble. And they end up um, being confined in the punishment cell. So they're not allowed their usual privileges. And they're in, in the punishment cell when we find them, um, which is called El Apando, which is the name of the book in Spanish. And they've been apandado, uh, which is a verb that, <laughs> that Revueltas comes up with, um, and they're forced to reformulate their plan, which was how to get drugs into the prison. So Albino and Polonio take advantage of El Carajo, the prick, who's this really wretched, foul figure. He's, um, he's disabled. They call him the cripple. And uh, he's got one eye and he's known throughout the penitentiary for, for carving up his veins every time he gets banged up in the hole. Uh, so he's this really, really potent and, and kind of viscerally disgusting figure, really, throughout the book that Revueltas takes no mercy on him whatsoever. Anyway, they convince El Carajo to get his mother to bring to sneak the drugs in in visiting time. But the problem is that that plan has now been scuppered by the fact that they're in, they're in the hole, they're in this uh, punishment cell. So it's like, how do we get contact? How do we have contact, physical contact, in order for these drugs to come to us? That is essentially the plot. And as I recount it now, it's sort of amazing to me that anyone should have agreed to... <laughs> to publish it in English. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, what happens is that the, the, the women get in, so the girlfriends of these lot get in with the mother who has hidden the drugs on her person. I will say no more. Basically what happens is they, they realize they can't get the drugs to the men. And so they make the girls make up this idea and they basically kind of incite a brawl uh, and they stir up loads of trouble just to distract and to create this kind of distraction and, and moment where some, this Passover of drugs might be able to happen. But it fails and it ends up in this kind of gargantuan defeat. And then the, the final nail in the coffin for anyone's honor or dignity or anything good is that El Carajo also betrays his mother's secret to the guards completely unnecessarily. It's the final kind of stage of the novel that we get this just line where he just says it, she's got the drugs. That's the book and I'll read a bit. I've been speaking for so long, Alia. I hope you're going to take over after <laughs> I will, I will. I'm, I'm, I'm having so much fun listening to you. I want to actually reread it for like the fifth time tonight. So. <laughs> it doesn't take long. That's the other thing. You know, it's one of those little like, okay, I'm, it's almost like an experience to read this book. Just a short, sharp punch in the face. Right. This is not from the beginning of the book, but it's almost the beginning. They were captive. More captive than Polonio. More captive than Albino. More captive than the prick. For a few seconds, it was empty, that rectangular cage, the apes disappearing momentarily as they paced back and forth in opposite directions to the far walls of the cage, 30 meters or so, 60 there and back. And that virgin, formless space transformed into inalienable sovereign territory under Polonia's stubborn right eye, which took in 
millimeter by millimeter each and every detail of that section of the wing. Apes, arch apes, stupid, vile and naive, naive as a ten-year-old whore. So stupid they didn't seem to notice that they alone were the captives, they and their mothers and their children and their forefathers. They were born to keep watch and they knew as much, to spy, to constantly look around making sure no one escaped their clutches in that city with its iron grid of streets, barred corridors, corners multiplying on all sides, and that stupid face they wore was nothing but the manifestation of a certain hazy longing for other unattainable aptitudes, a certain stutter of the soul in their simian features, underlaid with grief for an irredeemable loss of which they remained ignorant. Eyes all over them, a mesh of eyes covering their bodies, a river of pupils rushing over their limbs, napes, necks, arms, chest, balls, all to put food on the table at home, or so they told themselves, where their ape families danced and screeched, the little boys and girls and the wife, hairy on the inside. During their 24 long hours with the master ape at home, after his 24-hour shift in the penitentiary, stretched out on the bed, foul and clammy, the grease-smeared banknotes from petty bribes laying on the bedside table, but never leaving the prison, vile and captive in an endless circulation ape notes, which the wife repeatedly smoothed and pressed in the palm of her hand, slowly, terribly, not knowing what she was doing. Life was one long not knowing anything at all, not knowing that they were there in their cage, husband and wife, husband and husband, wife and children, father and father, sons and fathers, terrified, universal apes. Thank you. That was so beautifully read. And you get a sense of how harrowing um, this book is and, and how wonderful your translation. Um, Aliyah, would you talk a little bit about your own relationship to the book? Yes, I just want to start by saying, Chris, that just Sophie's just amazing because um, the, the translation of this book, I think it's particularly difficult. I think we'll talk about this uh, about this a bit more later on. But uh, listen, I, I have the book in my hands in, in Spanish. So I was reading uh, while you were reading, Sophie, and, and the translation is just remarkable. And I just uh, wanted to say that this... Um, this book uh, was introduced to me um, by um, the Argent, late Argentinian writer uh, Sergio Chafek. He recommended it at, 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 at a class. I immediately, as a very good student, went and, and, and requested <laughs> it at the, at the, at the library um, because he was very enthusiastic about it. And I just couldn't believe this. It's uh, a punch in the, in the face, as, as one of you said before. But um, it was not only the fact that such a short novel could do so much with language because you are you find yourself constantly lost and then finding out where you are which in a way recreates over and over again the feeling of being imprisoned and you wonder how can i be lost 
in such a small space because they, they are in, imprisoned in a very small space and, and Revueltas manages to do that with language and it, it amazed me. And also uh, this claustrophobic, mad, re- brilliant use of language amazed me and it also showed me uh, that with that you could if you are as brilliant as as revueltas of course you can um you can do quite a lot with uh, with uh, a very few pages if you let go of uh, of certain conventions regarding structure and the use of words and there's just one more thing which is something that i would love to to discuss with you um sophie and chris uh, which is it's the fact that that this is a very uncomfortable book. Um, you both agree in the sense that you, there, it's it's a very sad book too. It's a very violent book. Um, but it 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 goes back to me to the question of um, what what does a novel does to you as a reader? You know, you're finding you're reading this book about um, characters that Sophie described very well that are imprisoned and they're both violent characters and victims at the same time and and you do you you finish the book you close the book and you find yourself completely saddened and and bitter and you are and you've been also like a, a victim of a violent book yourself and that that literature can cause this state of um uncomfortableness you know uh, that you uh, find yourself feeling like is this the world that we are inhabiting kind of book you know that's something that that for me is very relevant especially at times where sometimes literature can be quite um uh, domesticized is that a word well i'll say it anyways mm-hmm. yeah I <laughs> um, think so. and, and leaving readers calm you know leaving uh, readers uh, feeling all right after reading a violent book or, or after watching a, a violent film or a, a film or a book about inequality and then you finish it and you feel fine and I think that's wrong uh, and this book uh, that's the exact opposite too so um, so that's uh, another reason why I loved it um, and that was my first reading with, which was in 2010 and I remember it vividly because I had the book from the the NYU library and I just wanted to write all over it you know because it wasn't my own copy (laughs) and I couldn't because it was a library book Um, so I had to turn it back and I couldn't find a copy uh, funnily so I printed it it's a short novel I printed it and and then I, I wrote all over my printed version uh, and I became also fascinated by the fact, well, the, the conditions under under the, the which the, the author was living. I mean, he was imprisoned, and this was something that fascinated me to the point that I wanted to write something about all books that had ever been written in prison, which is something that I was also <laughs> obsessed with uh, for some time. Um, so there was a second reading, or a third, no, a second reading for me. Um, when I was, I, I, I actually wanted to write about that aspect of, of this book, the conditions under which it was written, and that was in 2014. Um, and then there was um, the the current, uh, and that, that time I didn't have a copy either, so it was another printed version. So I only bought the book now, which is really, um, it's on my third uh, reading, and I actually read it twice for this, for this conversation. And I just uh, find myself 
in awe over and over again uh, at the fact that that he was uh, able to to leave us wondering who is imprisoned here who who exactly are uh, uh, looking after who and who are punishing who and and all the, those changes in in perspective throughout the the book uh, they, they just and and I would say one more thing is that I remember reading it for the, the first time and just being fascinated by the use of language and the fact that, that, that you were lost in the use of words, these monkeys, who are these monkeys? And you are, you're not sure what you're reading, you know? And this last time, I was just so sad. But maybe that was because I read it or reread it uh, the day after the Chilean referendum where we radically lost, or at least I did. Alia, I've got so many things to go on from that, from what you were saying, all in agreement with you. I think one of the things that you said was, you know, you mentioned just now what a short novel it is. And you mentioned before, um, at the very beginning, about a, a, a sense of being lost. I mean, you, it, given that we're, we're readers and so obviously we get plunged into a physical world, a physical setting. That's kind of quite an obvious one in this um, book. It's a prison and it's a sort of panopticon um, style prison, which is why you get uh, the description here of a, of a river of eyes flowing over the guards because from certain positions in their cells or on their wings, they are able to look at the the apes who are the prison guards. But of course, the prison guards themselves, this is a high security, like really well-developed prison. So they're also caged. They're in their own cage. Hence, and, and Revueltas takes this fact, this you know physical fact of their condition of being prison guards. And he absolutely runs with this idea of them being apes until it's so normal to read this this sense of this word, you know, it, 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 they, they become one and the same thing. You know, you no longer know whether or not when he says apes, you're imagining a prison guard in his blue flannel suit or an ape or something in between. And that, that for me is, is a little bit of the magic of this book. It's such a clear, you know, Borges famously said, like, it's, it's useless to try and make up new metaphors because, you know, they're just strained and they don't really work. But here you have this image that just couldn't be more appropriate. And, and, and that leads me to, to thinking a little bit about what, why it has such power, because it does make you lost. And in some ways, it is actually unhinged. Sometimes as, as, as a translator, you feel yourself sort of not being able to quite work out a physical space. That happens a lot. The physical spaces usually becomes clear to you as you translate. Mm. If it's not 100% clear in the original, you sort of make up your own in which to be absolutely clear so that the reader gets this sense of being set in a space on a stage. And here, it's such a confusing space. These bars upon bars, this city that is an iron grid on all sides. And I had to go to the National Archives in order to even understand what Lecumberri Prison was. Even though this book is, and it's important to stress, not set in Lecumberri Prison, it was written there. And I think we can, I think it's pretty clear that, you know, what he's describing is Lecumberri. And, uh, and it, it, I honestly had to go there in order to be able to, to, to translate the book. Amanda had been there. Amanda actually spent a lot of time there. She was doing a lot of translating and interpreting for political prisoners. But I also had this sense of being completely lost in some of its symbolism, in, in the physical space of the novel, 
in the in the space in which it was set, the sort of political moment, which isn't explicit in the book, but it is. I think it's why it's a masterpiece because in this book he's absolutely seeking truth. He's trying to understand something about human nature and the idea of what freedom and being mm-hmm. and, and being a free man or woman is, and the value of life if you are not free or the worthlessness, which I think would be how he would see it. Yeah, totally. I, I also wanted to add to that that um, uh, there's this paradox, I think, to the to the space, which is very relevant in this novel. That you that you um, you are in a very small place in a in a prison and even in a in a in in a punishment cell, and yet even though you are between four walls, you are lost. Right. Yeah. So in the in the in the book you find yourself lost, and I think that paradox is, is actually um, it's something that that perhaps he managed to write because he he probably lived through it the the disorientation of being imprisoned the the disorientation of of actually not knowing exactly when it's morning and when it's evening um, and and. Mm. And how how many days you've been inside a, a, a jail, you know, and and between those four walls. And I, I, it's something that was also quite striking for me because, um, as a law student, I went uh, to several prisons to to try to to move uh, prisoners from one place to another because their their lives were in prison were were in danger. So when I read this book, I it, it was really also. Something that I don't know. I I I thought I would go back in my imagination to those prisons, to the prisons that I had actually seen, and mm. yet I was constantly my my point of view was constantly shifted, you know, through um through the use of language and and through this way of of just um making the distinctions invisible between um the 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 policemen, the the, the 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 guards, I mean, and and the people who are um, there for like as, as a punishment, and they're all in the same position. No, pragmatically, he sets it up for us to be lost and confused because he puts the prison guards in cages, exactly. and that's also the 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 scene of the the final scene is a is a really bloody brawl between these three. Um, you know, cold turkey prisoners who are absolutely wild. I mean, they're described as gladiators and women are ripping pieces of hair out of people's heads from out, from outside and whenever they can get one of their hands through the bars, they're kind of ripping the hair off, you know, the, the prison guards to try to get their, to try and help their their, their boyfriends. And it's, it, it was honestly hard at every stage to understand what cage, what cell. Is the, is the guard now in the mm. cell? Is the, mm. and, and, but then he... It compounds that sense of being lost and of disorientation by adding in these extraordinary transcendent, transcendental digressions, which are the scenes of the the prisoners essentially remembering either there's a kind of nostalgia for the flesh in every way, either drug taking or or se- like sexual activity with their with their girlfriends who they're pining for. It's I think ethically such a such a powerful book in the way that it makes you feel uh, as a reader you know it, it makes you feel also very uncomfortable about the cruelty of the prison you know mm. and this is something that keeps on going and and you you we we as human as, as a society we pretend it doesn't happen but uh, but these 
this space uh, does exist. And, and I think uh, the fact that the book makes you feel uncomfortable throughout and, and lost uh, throughout the reading um, process and experience, it's just, um, it also t touches the, the, the ethical question of the role of literature um, uh, when, when, when literature touches these delicate uh, subjects, you know. So that um, was going to be my next question for you, Alia, as a writer, and one who I also see to be, uh, you know, as a person, I see you totally located in society and politics. I, you, I, that is you. As a writer, it's, it's there, but then they're not what I would call political novels. <laughs> I'm not sure really, I'm not sure I'm entirely sure what I would call a political novel in the first place. But, you know, one of the things that comes back time and time again around the criticism of this work by Rueltas is the, this sort of use, taking it as a compliment. I mean, complimenting him on finally having toned down some of his uh, politics or sort of, you know, stopped wearing on his sleeve in order to sort of transcend it, in order for this to become a book whose symbolism grows and the sort of specificity wanes a little bit. So he focuses always on excluded people, on uh, the kind of wretched of the earth, on drug addicts, on prostitutes. Almost all of his stories, uh, mm. you know, involve this. And, and there are some really tragic lines. I read one before, you know, as naive mm. as a 10-year-old whore. Mm. Of course, this, this is not Revuelta speaking. He's not calling a little girl who's prostituting herself a whore. What he's trying to look at, I think, he, what he's trying to do is kind of, in a way, show us the full truth and get as close to the Mexican reality as he can in order. And he doesn't paint a pretty picture. Like this poor mother of the prick is also just described in the most cruel ways. You know, he's, she's described as the ugliest creature on the planet. You know, it's, it's horrible. But he's trying to get at the truth. He's trying to understand everyone in all their colours. I guess it's such a, a, a relevant question of what, what a political novel is, because I guess there's this um, idea that a political novel will have to be somehow pedag pedagogical. Mm. Um, so you'll have to, uh, it will have to very clearly tell you who is the good guy and who mm -hmm. is the bad one. And, and so you close the book and you have this ethical um, learning and you can take that out of the book. And in this particular case, um, I think Revueltas being such a political writer, of course, and such a political being, he's, um, he's doing something a lot more complex. Uh, I, it is political, but it's not pedagogical in any way. You know, it's, 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 it's this um, thinking through writing, and it's as Sophie, as you're saying, Sophie, it's like more uh, existentialist in its in its approach. But it is asking um, these political questions. That, so, what is freedom? What is the meaning of being free? And what happens with uh, all sorts of human beings when they're um, when their when when their freedom is is taken away from them and and what is cruelty uh, and all these are are political questions. It's just that literature, when when good literature, when when it approaches these questions, is not to say yes and no. It's not to say good and bad uh, or up and down or left or right. It's just to 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 ask it all over again. So it's it's a it's a novel that's asking this question. A million times. What mm -hmm. is freedom? If you read this mm -hmm. book, and you can ask ask it in every single page. So, what is freedom? And you'll mm -hmm. find maybe a poem 
in, in, in the reply in, in, in one page. And in the next one, you'll find this violent act. And then you have uh, a, a tiny little act of tenderness. And, and then you, you close the book without one answer. And I think uh, the political novels that are, are able, able to do that, to approach subjects with such complexity uh, and, and doing that with language, I, I just find it so, I don't know, so extraordinary, uh, which also leads me to a question, Sophie, about, about your process and Amanda's process translating this book, but also how your, how your relationship to this book changed through the translation process. If you remember any conversations you had with Amanda uh, on certain paragraphs or words that, that you found particularly hard or particularly, I don't know, challenging to, to translate. So uh, I, I just want you to talk a bit, a bit <laughs> about your process because I, I just, uh, as a reader, um, I, I read this book and I, it's just that I, I let go. I let go and I find myself completely submerged. And, and as a translator, I imagine you can't completely let go because you need to be constantly thinking about the next word and the rhythm. And I want you to, to yeah, if you could talk to us about, about that a bit. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that what happened at different stages when I read, we read this book now, I think that for both Amanda and I, what happened in certain different stages of translating it was that we either let go or held back and tried to take control. And it always felt like you were sacrificing one thing for the other. Like, I'm not sure we ever found that sweet spot as I read it of of letting of of make of letting both things happen at once and thank goodness Amanda was there doing it with me because in one in one part you would obviously just in a very practical and kind of pragmatic sense together we would something I've never done with another co-translator before teasing out which adjective went with which noun I mean at, at that basic level and that's not because Amanda and I didn't have the language to understand as earlier said at the beginning you know like I was just you're, you get lost and that's because he has all these kind of like subalternating clauses that are kind of fighting for attention and that he the, the digressions within one sentence with Amanda we we took um chunks of the book and it was kind of like yeah page one to five for you five to ten and and off we went and then we came back and we did so many drafts of this book in a way that I think we almost lost control sometimes of it we literally had this kind of chaotic process of of pages flying back and forth um, through the ether. But um, so in so, on some pages, I'm really proud. And I think that something about that process really helped us to almost get, get the feverishness of it. And I think that Amanda and I, every now and again, towards the end of the process, we actually said to each other, we'll never know if that adjective was meant for, for this or for this, because it just so happens that they have the same gendered you know, and mm. end, end, ending. So we, we can't know. So let's go with this one. Um, and like almost every book I've ever translated or co-translated, I think there will be things that we did differently, but I think that our process was sort of truthful to the fury of the writing of it. When I read it this time, and um, the, the, the word Navian uh, comes out at the beginning and at, at, the, at the end of the book, and I underlined it in my copy at, at last. And, <laughs> and then um, I was thinking about this word, the no oneness. There's this sad, sad togetherness in being no one. Uh, in 
that plural. Mm. Uh, mm. There's it's a it's a no one because a no one is usually a, alone, and and she adds this plural, and there's this togetherness, and I think that's also something that's there throughout the book um, because everyone is so you're in solitary you're in, you're in, a, in, a, in prison you're in, a, in an isolated cell and, and everyone is like a man by his own and for his own and, and, and there's this um, violence into that and yet that word creates this sense of bonding that's uh, at the same time very uh, i don't know it's just very deeply sad in the in the in the very deeply sad way that a book talking about people in prison can can be you know yeah i agree with you alio it goes from the that the final pages where they have the, the finally have the fight which is like yeah um it's like sort of finally the novel explodes after he's laid yeah. all of these little seeds and all these uh, poured petrol everywhere and then just goes boom mm. uh, and then the final two lines five lines maybe it becomes tender mm. it, it sinks back down again and I must say that those are the kinds of moments as a translator or co-translator in this case where I think yeah Amanda and I we really we really got that I do think that we heard all of it you know because he put he puts everything into the book. There's everything in there. There's so much sadness, so much anger. There's his own captivity, but really he's not focusing on that. He's focusing on the wretched, you know, like people who have been completely forgotten, you know, on the excluded of society. Which is um, almost uh, unwritable in a way. And, and nowadays, that I think there's this tendency in literature, uh, of, uh, like a, liter a tendency towards literality, you know, where the author is the protagonist and there's like mm -hmm. um, everything is autobiographical. And, and this isn't. And he was in prison, but and yet it's not about his particular experience in prison. Um, it's it's there's this universality to it, but there's also like a way of even though he is in prison, he he manages to to cut that tendency uh, or, towards literality and and do something else. And uh, and I think that's also it's a it's a lesson for for writers today um, to be able to jump uh, a bit farther from from yourself, even though even if the experience touches upon your experience. There is the this sense that that there's so much interest in drawing autobiographically from from authors now, and the fact that Revueltas took pains to say that this was not his his precise experience, and yet we we want so much to understand what it was like for him in in prison, and to see that as as the lens that will help us understand the novel but he's working precisely against that and i and i wonder how you both think about the the tension that's that's brought there because it's not that it doesn't reflect on his experience of course it does but as Ali, as you say there's a universality that's much more important ultimately so i wonder how you deal with the tension between the the keen desire for the autobiographical now and the 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 specific fictionality that revueltas wants to play in what you made me think about is the is the other translations because i became really interested in that very question when i was uh translating 
with with Amanda, and I looked at the existing translations uh, of El Apando, which had kind of spanned from pretty soon after in France, quite relatively soon after it was originally published, to uh, just a, like a few, one in Polish, um, French, Italian just happened a few years ago. And so I was interested and I looked at all the blurbs because I was I wanted to see whether or not which narrative was going to be drawn out. Um, the translation theorist Mona Baker, I never don't think about what she says about translators having the ability, but also publishers having the ability to activate certain narratives at their whim. Like every translation decision that we have activates a narrative, a personal narrative, a public narrative, a meta narrative. And I always think about this. Um, I mean, not always as I'm translating, but always when I'm doing things like pitching a book, which has happened to be the, the case this time with Amanda, you know, we were really trying to sell this book. And in a way, I do sometimes think that publishers sort of meet you with well, why hasn't it been translated already? I, I do feel that you have to do a bit of work to get them to think, well, if, surely it would have already come into English if it was that good a book, because this is 50 years later. Um, and I understand that, I do. And in this case, what happened was something interesting, which is that I kept talking about him being a sort of 68 writer, a forgotten 68 writer. And then I started to become a bit uncomfortable with this idea of him as a 68 writer because I felt I was misleading what the novel was about because it's not a book about the 68 movement. Uh, and then I looked and, and lo and behold, the French edition, the Italian edition, they, they'd all said set in Lecumberi prison, which it is not set. Hmm. Of course, there is a stamp at the end of the manuscript, which gets repeated in a printed edition, which is beautifully done by New Directions. And they they also say at the end that he wrote it there. And I do think that that is an important part of the text. But it was interesting to me that they were kind of pushing this public narrative right from the paratext, right from the blurbs um, and his and his bio on the back and things. Because in this particular case, that sort of cultural specificity or that sort of geographical specificity, right? He was the Mexican leader. He wasn't, but you know, he was leading the Mexican uh, student marches. There's usually we try to explain to publishers why a book is so universal that you should translate it because you're going to understand you know it's going to it's going to touch the English readers too you know Americans and Anglophones all over the world will be able to understand something you know what I mean this, this sort of tendency that we have um to think that we're all aliens if we speak different languages but um in this case it was pushing the universalism of this global movement this is saying he was a global writer and in a way, I sort of came to think in the end that that, that was sort of commodifying something that he would have loathed. Like, I think he would have hated it <laughs> to see on the back of the blurbs his bio. I, I agree. He would have hated it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes novels, like this is from a, a very critical um point of view to of, of what sometimes international literature does which is to somehow exoticize i don't know if that's a word either mm -hmm. but it um, is saying like mm -hmm. this particular book uh, will um make you travel to a certain place or you learn about a certain country's culture and so so that's the other thing so it's either either you make it universal or you make it very specific and you move between these two um no, uh, this this dichotomy that that you and you need to fit in a book into either universality or specificity to make it sellable and and readable and and I think in this particular case, um, this book uh, 
it's it is about uh, all these characters being imprisoned. It is about um, a prison in particular, but it, but but it isn't. And 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 I think uh, also what what makes it so profound is what Revueltas does with language uh, and what you managed to do with Amanda with the translation, which is. Um, it's like this game where you do, you you do you do you you turn around and around and around and you're dizzy, you know, and you're dizzy mm-hmm. and you're trying to figure out uh, where you are standing. And and this is this is how how I felt uh, through the different readings of the same book. Uh, you never stop feeling uh, dizzy, and I think that's just extraordinary. I th- I think it goes back what you were saying um, so beautifully before, Leah, about the not wanting to engage the pedagogical instinct in in reading this, and instead the affective um, mm-hmm. experience of reading it, so that it almost dares you. Oh, try and learn something from this. Try and even <laughs> try and even understand the space in which you have been asked to inhabit, and instead feel claustrophobia and feel loss and feel the yearning for freedom and that being much more important than this notion of a a pedagogy uh, that literature asks you to take away. Yeah, I so agree with you there, Chris. It's like you try and understand the essence of man's freedom. I'm going to give it a go. See if you can (laughs) grasp anything from this like kind of slippery trail that I'm going to leave. Um, But and yet it's so... Like the Spanish word would be like contundente. It's like so filling. It give it like mm. it, you you finish it feeling so invigorated. I think. Well, oh, that's. Before I take us out, I want to make sure that we can talk a little bit about our season signature question, which is thinking about translation in a very specific way, and that is the idea of untranslatability. Is there a word that either of you feel is untranslatable or is particularly difficult to translate for a certain reason? I'll take that question first, just to say that, because uh, Sophie and I um, have known each other for some time now, and, and uh, at least my first uh, novel, uh, it was full of uh, what we call Chilenismos. So these are Chilean way of, of ways of, of saying things. And Sophie managed to translate absolutely everything. So mm. <laughs> I don't know if, if there's an untranslatable word for Sophie Hughes um, in particular. For regular will... humans, though. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe for regular humans, but she will find a way. And she will not only find a way, she'll find like the exact syllables for those words. <laughs> so that's why it's it's, it's such a pleasure to and an honor to be to that my work's translated by by her and I'm I'm just not being nice. Yeah, she really is uh, something else. Um, I was I just wanted to bring in um, um, a funny word in in Chilean um, in Chilean Spanish, which is carrete, um, which uh, which is a word that's also a verb that is. Um, it's a particular kind of, of party, an informal party that you go to, um, invited all of a sudden to go to someone someone's house. So you go to a carrete, carreteas, 
um, and and it's also the word uh, for for the thread where, where you put the thread. I don't know the word actually in English. Well, and Sophie will have to help with that. Um, but I don't, I don't know if it's untranslatable. I just like it a lot. Is it the spool? It's, I, it's this a, is yeah, role. I mean, I mean, it's a role where you keep the the, the thread. You oh, know? the spool. It's the a spool. spool. The spool. Yeah. 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 Thank you, Sophie. Yeah. Uh, but so that word some somehow translates into in Spanish, in Italian Spanish, into going to party and and mm. and it, it has like a million different versions of it, which I really like, and it's like transgenerational, which is really nice too. Yeah, and who could resist the invitation to a party that you know is going to unspool? Not <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. You never know. You don't know, you don't know where it will end. I have, yeah, I, there, are, there are loads of words, Chris. There are so many words that I come up against, and I always mean to write them down, and I never do because uh, in, in every context they change. But I did, I did remember a really nice story. It's a little anecdote. Maybe <laughs> we should finish with an anecdote. I, I like it, and I'll, it'll become clear why I like it, because we often get asked about untranslatableness, <laughs> the untranslatability of things as translators. I don't mind it, because I think philosophically it's kind of interesting, and maybe even linguistically it's interesting. But also it's a little bit like being like a, like a musician being asked which bit of that famous piece, uh, it, it, like w which ornament is impossible to play? Like, where do you always fudge? <laughs> it's essentially the question. It's like, where do you where do you never manage to do your job? Sort of thing? <laughs> <laughs> where do you fail time and time again? So it's it's funny because we always get asked it as translators, and I don't mind because it's not it's not known about it. But there's a really nice story that I heard when I was back as a master's student about twenty one. And um, I read it because I was doing some work on um, Beckett and thinking about his self-translations. And it was Emile Choran, the, the philosopher, who was spending time with him at the time in Paris. And um, he wrote this anecdote, which was that the French text, which was originally written by Beckett, and it was called Sand, um, in English, he self-translated it as lessness. And Emile Choram and Beckett were looking again at these translations, at the translation, which was a self-translation. And then Emile Choram became obsessed with Beckett uh, about the poverty of the original after it had been translated as into lessness. So they were no, he was no longer satisfied with the original title, the oh, song, that's which means without, right? Uh, and uh, and Choram says, we finally agreed that we should give up the search that there was no noun in French capable of expressing absence in itself and that we had to resign ourselves to the metaphysical poverty, poverty of a preposition. And I would like to imagine that one day someone's going to sit down and, and find like the time to look at all the instances where a translation, in part thanks to the translator, but also in part thanks to the language, the target language that can sometimes do and flex and bend in ways that the other language can't do in certain instances that means you get these little moments of magic that you could never tran back translate into the original language i think we have one in elapando which is the stutter of the soul and something some magic happens some alchemy happens because of the target language and so i do think there are certain un like undoable back translations that can't mm -hmm. go back to being as full and rich as they are after they've been translated. So that's my little like flag waving for translation. I love that. 
those were those were so perfect. Uh, I thank you so much for those those thoughtful offerings. And with that marvelous ending, I'm going to close us out. Our thanks, as always, to the Society for Novel Studies for its sponsorship and to Public Books for their continued support. Hannah Jorgensen is our graduate intern. Connor Hibbard is the sound engineer. And I'd encourage you to subscribe, rate us, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Some novelists from past seasons include Changrei Li, Teju Cole, Orham Pamek, Damon Galgut, Sigrid Nunez, and Carol Phillips, and many more conversations like this one. Thank you, Alia and Sophie, for joining me for this very special conversation. Thank you so much, Chris. Thanks, Thank Alia. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Sophie. That was a lot of fun. Thank you so much.